Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. Welcome to episode 152 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber suited foes. Eh, see how I removed bi monthly since it just doesn't really apply anymore? My name is Kyle, and this is the first episode of September 2015, and this is a very special episode. We're kicking off a brand new subcategory of the show, but let me get to that in a second. First, I want to tell you about the awesomeness coming up next weekend here in Portland. Saturday and Sunday of next weekend, the 19th and 20th of September, we will be attending Rose City Comic Con. Now, this is one of Portland's homegrown shows that started back in 2012, I think. Uh, It's a great convention, and we have a ton of great things happening at this year's show. First and foremost, I will be tabling with Keith Foster of Big Pimp Jones, the author of the indie kaiju comic Kadoja, who incidentally is getting a issue one re-release through 215 Inc., and it's available through Diamond. We are actually going to have some of those issues at the booth before they're actually for sale, so just heads up on that. Keith and I are sharing booth 1121, which is right across the walkway path thingy from Dark Horse Comics. We are abandoning the standard table, chairs, and merch setup for a much more interactive kaiju experience. The booth will be transformed into a miniature cityscape, and you can come and get your photo snapped. We'll have stuff for sale, but it'll be tucked away. If you've ever wanted to pick up prints, by the way, I will have seven different prints to choose from at the show, and I'm not making a ton of them. And also, I'll have some Kaiju Core stuff like stickers, lanyard patches, etc. We're also involved with the programming. At 12.30 p.m. in Room 2, Rose City Comic Con is hosting a very special screening of my documentary, Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction. Right after the film, Martin and I will be up on stage for a Q&A. And then on Sunday at 10.30 a.m., I'm going to be on the Monsters of Podcasting panel in Room 4, along with Rachel and Miles from Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, Jamie and Megan from the British History Podcast, and we're going to be discussing the business and craft of podcasting Finding your niche, nuts and bolts of production, and what it means to go pro. At 1.30 p.m. on Sunday, you won't want to miss our game show panel, Giant Monster Happy Challenge, in room number four. You've heard us talk about this over the past month or so, and it's going to be crazy and awesome, and you can be a part of it. If you're going to Rose City Comic Con, make sure you check the show notes for a link to the Giant Monster Happy Challenger form to fill out. I want to make sure that everybody knows that this game is designed to be fun at whatever level Godzilla fan you are. We can't wait to see how this goes down, and we really hope that you're there at least uh, to support it, if not up there on stage with us participating in the game show. Now, all of that is happening at the convention proper, but we're also doing something off-site. On Saturday night, the KaijuCast is having our first-ever Portland listener party at the Killer Burger downtown. It's starting at 8 p.m. It's basically going to go until everyone has to bail. This should be a blast. We've been having these listener parties over the past few years, and it's always awesome to meet up with fellow kaiju fans and like-minded people. 
One more thing to get out of the way before we get into the nitty-gritty of this particular episode. Don't forget that this month's Daikaiju discussion is for the 2001 GMK, a.k.a. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. And if you want to send in your thoughts, questions, and reviews for this film, make sure you do so before September 25th to be included in the discussion. Okay, now that we have all that out of the way, this episode of the Kaiju Cast is what I'm hoping will be an ongoing series in Kaiju history. Instead of looking at a particular film, we are looking at a particular historical individual in the Kaiju genre. For our debut episode in the series, we turn to Eric Hominick, the creator and webmaster of akiraifukube.org. Eric has essentially been writing Ifukube's biography in English and working directly with Ifukube's family to tell his story. So if you've ever wondered about the man behind what I would call the most iconic monster music ever written, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Now I'm just going to play a quick theme, and then the interview will start, and then we might close it out with another theme or two from Ifukube's resume. sitting here in the Crown Plaza Hotel at G-Fest 22 with Mr. Eric Hominick. Uh, if you have not heard of him, he is the creator and operator of akiraifukube.org, and he is here to start something off at the Kaiju Cast, a brand new series where we talk in singular episodes about one particular person, and today we're going to be talking about Akira Ifukube. Thank you for being on the podcast, man. Oh, it's it's a pleasure, and it's it's good to be back, because if you remember, my first time here on the Kaiju Cast was actually last year, at last year's G-Fest for the pre-Ifukube 100 panel that you did. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. We, you know, it, what, what was amazing to me about that was that, you know, that was the 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 first time that John and Chris had been dipping their toes into this world of concert production. Right, right. So I just remember sitting up there with them and, you know, John sort of stoically up there because he, I think at that time he, he remembered that he had to go directly from the, uh, from, from your panel to, <laughs> yeah. to start setting up for the concert. Yeah, and I could, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but he, but both John and Chris get like that. I think, I think before, and certainly this year too, there's, you know, a little like, Oh my gosh, we're really doing this. And, yeah. Uh, we can actually take a brief aside right now to, yeah, to talk just a little well. bit about the, about the concert. So unfortunately for any listeners that didn't make it to G-Fest or, or to the concert, it happened last night and it was amazing. They played Kootani's work. Otani-san was there. Yes. Came up on stage. Eric 
of course, introduced everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they played selected, sw- uh, I guess you'd say like they, John created suites from the first three or from the three Gamera movies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was able, uh, to get, and, and John keeps emphasizing this because it was very important, a very high resolution copies yeah. <laughs> of the, of the score. So what basically what John did was he, he got everything from the composer from mm-hmm. the Gamera trilogy and from GMK and basically hand selected. Okay. Yeah. I want this bit and I want this bit. And after selecting the bits that he wants, he weaves them together in these individual suites, you know, so all the, you know, best of from Gamma 1 and it's Gamma 2 and so on and so forth. And it's amazing how seamlessly he's able to take that music and, and put it Absolutely. together. Absolutely. Cause that, that was, that cause, cause yeah. that, that, that's his work right there. You know, it's, it's not like, a, you know, cause if he were just playing the individual cues, you know, there'd be, you'd play the cue, then there'd be a break and then there'd be another cue, then a break. But the way he wove that together without stop and so seamlessly, it's, it's amazing the work that he does. The concert was amazing as well, and um, same thing that happened to me last year, just sitting in the audience, I was nodding my head to the music <laughs> I knew, tapping my thumb against my leg, and just, and and of course, there were some parts of it where I got a little misty-eyed, or like like I said earlier before we started recording, like goosebumps were running down my arms, and oh, ah, yeah, me man, too. it's just, it's legitimately breathtaking to see this stuff performed live, especially if you really, you know, love the music. It is. And, you know, where else are you going to be able to do something like that besides at, at G Fest and nowhere. And, and, and I really think that all of us as Godzilla fans or Tokusatsu fans or Gamera fans or whatever your, uh, orientation i i think that uh you know we owe john and chris and all of the all of the guys also you know and archie and all of the guys who worked behind the scenes to make this happen because it's like what john said you know no one else was doing it we wanted it so you know we basically decided to do it so all of us i mean we we owe them a lot a huge debt of gratitude for just having the the guts to to you know dare to dream dare basically to dream, yeah. <laughs> and then to actually Absolutely. pull this off well, that actually makes a pretty good segue uh into what i really want to talk about which is if fukube mm-hmm. uh last night in front of the crowd you said that uh well actually i'm gonna let you say it again because you put it so well let's talk just briefly about the birth of symphonic fantasia Mm. Because I found that to be a very interesting sidebar about Ifukube. And speaking of John saying, well, nobody else is doing this. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in 1983 is when he composed those. Right. And this was subsequent to the composer getting a lot of pressure, I guess you could say, from fans, colleagues, students. You know, we really like your film music, particularly your kaiju film music and your tokusatsu film music, we would love to hear this at a live concert. And the the composer, he had a very interesting attitude about film music, almost a paradoxical one. He was very good at it and he liked writing film music, but I think in many ways he didn't think that a lot of film music was capable of sort of standing on its own two feet. In other words, if you take the music away from the images. Oh, right. right it it yeah. doesn't, it, 
it can't it can't stand alone because the music is there to to sort of augment the images. Right, so if you right. take the, the, the two are almost like joined together. That's and, right. And as I'm assuming as far as he was concerned, he didn't see the point of of breaking them apart. That's right. You know, because, you know, he was also a concert composer, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about later, but but also a film composer. And and I think he just he he saw the two types of music as being very different. Concert music is designed necessarily to stand on its own Mm -hmm. whereas film music is not so anyway long story short he just he thought this was a strange request from people and he basically hesitated on on fulfilling these requests because he just thought it it wouldn't work it wouldn't Mm -hmm. be possible and my my dear friend uh, reiko yamada who was a former student of his uh, told me this story where uh he he was Asked by a certain student in particular, you know, you should you should do this. And Kube said, "Well, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I, I just don't think it'll work." And the student said, "Okay, well, that's that's fine, but please know that when you die, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take your music and I'm going to put it together for yeah. a concert performance." So Kube said, "Oh, well, I guess in that case, I might as well be the one to do it." So he yeah. did it. <laughs> I'm glad he did it, man. I, I I don't know if I mentioned this. Symphonic Fantasia, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Absolutely one of my favorite things mm, that I can mm-hmm. ever hear that's giant monster related. Uh, you know, it was, and the listeners probably know this too. Symphonic Fantasia was put to Godzilla movie footage. Yes. And turned into a release called Godzilla Fantasia. That's or right. At least that's what we call it here. I don't know if that's what its name I think is. That's what it's, I think that's what it's called, yeah. And my son basically was raised on Godzilla Fantasia because like when he was a kid, he didn't have any need to see like Akira Takarada talking to Nick Adams for half the movie. You know? right. So yeah. we just watched Godzilla Fantasia over and over and over again. So I know that music. Yes. Like it's in my bones now. Like I know it that well. And so seeing it performed live. Oh, was so breathtaking last night. It was amazing. Um, but Going back to Fukube, mm. I'm really glad that he composed that because, uh, like overall, it's probably about a 40 minute. Yeah, piece each that, like all, all each piece is about like 15. That's right, like minutes. somewhere you know, somewhere you know, depending of course on the the tempo that the conductor chooses, but it could be anywhere from like you know 12 minutes to 15 minutes right. per per section. It's really really good stuff, and of course, it doesn't just include Godzilla; it includes other uh, works from his Tokusatsu films. Our film scores, I should say. We also heard last night the Kishimai. Kishimai. Yes. I, <laughs> I had it last night, and this morning I just have not had enough coffee. So, well, you know, j- j- Japanese is hard to speak this early in the day if you're not a native Japanese. At least so I've heard. <laughs> but no, Kishimai. I was I was particularly proud of this because it's a march a naval march that he wrote in 1943 mm-hmm. he was commissioned by the imperial japanese government to do this and as i had mentioned in my remarks last night he he wanted to write music military music a military march on an epic scale if you listen to a lot of the military music military marches from that period and what's interesting about this by the way is that a lot of this military music that the japanese use it's it's available on cd very readily oh really oh yeah and it's you can get original recordings of it and there's no no shortage of re-recordings of it oh. in japan they're they're 
you know, it, it seems kind of strange to us, you know, kind of controversial maybe. But in Japan, they, they have, as I mentioned, quite a few re-recordings of this, this military music, mm-hmm. you know, high, high fidelity World War II, you know, it's like World War II in yeah, color. Yeah. We it's, should, listen, yeah. So we should clarify. This is for World the War II yeah. in stereo. <laughs> we're, we're talking about <laughs> a time when Japan and America were not good friends. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, but you listen, my point is you listen to these, these marches and, you know, for all intents and purposes, they sound like pretty standard military marches of, mm. you know, of the period. But Yves Kube wanted to do something, as I mentioned, on an epic scale. So he imagined this story in antiquity where this, uh, Empress, Empress Jingu, uh, goes to the Korean peninsula. There was, there used to be a kingdom there called Sila, and she went to conquer it. And they came, they saw, they conquered. They came back with all of these plundered treasures. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Japanese records from there, from that time, there's a description that when the Empress triumphantly returned back to Japan, there was some sort of a band that played a tune called Kishimai, which means good fortune dance, mm-hmm. to welcome the Empress home and sort of describe her her military glory for having done this. So when Yves Kube had received the commission from the Japanese government, he started thinking about this particular story and thought, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of have an idea of what this music might have sounded like when the Empress returned. So I'm going to do sort of my take on that for the Navy. So he chose the name Kishimai for his march because that was the yeah. name that yeah. was described in this old text. And what's cool about that piece is that it's got a lot of great melodies in it. And there's one melody in there that reoccurs several times in particular that anyone who's a Godzilla fan will recognize. It's the frigate march that you first heard in Godzilla 1954 oh, yeah. Yeah. and then, you know, Monster Zero March from Godzilla versus Monster Zero. So when you hear that melody, that is so much uh, that is so associated with Godzilla. Mm-hmm. It actually has its roots in that 1943 military march, Kishimai. That's really cool. And I, at one point, we're gonna I, we're gonna get back to Fukube in a second. Uh, at one point online, I had seen someone post a video. I don't know if it was a trailer or something, but it was a it was a film that predated Godzilla. But it oh, had yes. Godzilla themes in it. Yes. And it was Fukubei's work. And at, for me, I was just like, what? <laughs> My mind exploded. Well, and then you- I started thinking about Fukubei's work and how he pulls themes and, and, uh, you know, bits of music from his other films and weaves them into the newer things that he did. And really, it, I almost feel like Fukubei's work could, or as his film work at mm-hmm. least, could all be considered one gigantic pool of his work that he just says, well, this is what I have and I'm going to go in, I'm going to use this and that and just to make the best uh, that he can at the time. Yeah. And, and that actually goes back into our earlier discussion about his attitudes about film music is I, I think that he, he did that. He would take bits and pieces, melodies, themes, whatever from some of his concert works mm-hmm. And use those in his film works. Oh, okay. And he did that for several reasons. Of course, there's the legendary time constraints in the Japanese film industry where composers sometimes have not a whole lot of time to compose music. Mm-hmm. So he would have to 
sort of on the fly think, okay, well, you know, what do I have in my my catalog of themes that might fit this particular scene in this movie yeah, or this particular yeah. monster or whatever. So, but what I, my point being is that he didn't think that when people went to move to go see a movie, that they would be focusing on the music as much as they did. He, he was again, shocked that, you know, people would remember these melodies and That's themes cool. like, well, didn't you come for the movie? Didn't you come to <laughs> how, how, how is it possible that you remember? Cause he, he had a very almost, you know, film music had almost in, in his eyes, more of a utilitarian purpose as opposed to artistic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so again, that sort of, goes back to our discussion but the godzilla theme the the famous da 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 that actually again comes from a world war ii era piece of music called the arctic forest it's a piece of music it was another commission (gasps) that he was uh, commissioned by the government to go to japanese occupied manchuria Mm -hmm. and write a piece of music uh for the uh for the colony basically Mm -hmm. so he was invited by the japanese government to go to manchuria and tour it in order to gain inspiration to write this piece of music and it's a piece of music that's in three parts or three movements as we say in the hoity-toity classical community (laughs) and uh it, it the third part of it is called mountain wine festival and it depicts a traditional Manchurian wine festival happening up in the mountains, hence the name Mountain Wine Festival. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a very it's a very raucous piece of music, as you could probably imagine. And that piece of that that melody, that da 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 da, mm-hmm. actually first comes from there. So when you're listening to Godzilla, right, right, that actually has its origins. In a Manchurian wine festival from 1944 was when that piece of music was written. 44. Yeah. So when was Ifukube? Well, I mean, we could talk about his entire life, but let's let's just talk about his work. Uh, When did he really get involved with composing? Well, that's a very good question because he got involved in composing at a very early age. Mm -hmm. He was born on May 31st, 1914 on the northernmost Japanese island of Hokkaido, Mm -hmm. which certainly then, and even to an extent today, is considered the last frontier of Japan or sort of the the Japanese Alaska. (laughs) You know, it's it's geographically not that far from the the main Japanese island of Honshu, but Mm -hmm. it might as well be thousands of miles away because it's 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 up there. It's it's mountainous. It's kind of a, a colder climate. Yeah, it's on my to do list when I you know if I can go back to Japan and and have enough time to go up there because it takes takes a while actually. To get well, there. well, I would recommend it. I was I was very well, fortunate. Yes, I well, and we can talk. About, I've I've been to his birthplace and this sort of. So we can we can talk about that if you want to. But uh, Hokkaido is 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 fabulous. It's so beautiful. You just you know like you'll you can be in like Sapporo, which mm-hmm. is one of the largest cities in Japan actually, and you know you're there and it it feels very metropolitan and and very built up, but. It doesn't take long for you to get out there and then you're, you're, you know, literally out in the boonies. We took, uh, I was traveling with some friends and we took a train from Sapporo out to Kushiro, which is actually the town where the composer was born. And for a good several hours, you were just in this no man's land, but it's gorgeous. These mountains and these forests and these rivers and stuff like that. And, and for hours, this is what you get. No civilization whatsoever. So that's today. 
if you can imagine then what it would have been like in 1914. Oh, yeah. So he was, he was born in Kushiro, Hokkaido. And in, in Hokkaido, there is an indigenous group of people called the Ainu. I have heard of the Ainu people. What, but they have a relationship to, to Varan. Is that right? Well, yeah, well, we'll, 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 we'll get into <laughs> that. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I would say that there, there is probably in, in some ways that you, certainly in terms of the music that you wouldn't expect, but, mm. but yeah, well, the, the, the Ainu are an indigenous people. They're, they're basically the Native Americans of Japan, if right, you want right. to con- consider them that. And growing up in Hokkaido as a young, as a young boy, the, the composer to be became fascinated with, with music of, all different varieties. And I knew music was one type of music that he became very interested in because he was surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. You know, these sort of strange chants and dancing that they would do. And if you listen to traditional Ainu music, and it's all over YouTube, I encourage anyone listening to to just check that out. It, it sounds like Native American music from this country. And, mm-hmm. and there has to be a relation because you go to these Ainu villages in Hokkaido, there are totem poles and things like oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing sight to see. Like, you know, you would think, because I, I know you're from, you, you live in Oregon. I mean, mm-hmm. some of these totem poles look like they could be from the Pacific Northwest, but they're actually from the Pacific Northeast, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. You know, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to put it that way. So he heard Ainu music as, as a youth. He uh, heard a lot of, uh, European style classical music as a youth, you know, so the old 78 RPM records he would listen to. And he also listened to a lot of, uh, Japanese folk music. So with these three musical traditions kind of coming together in his head, he thought, wow, you know, it'd be kind of, I like this music a lot. I like listening to it. I'd like to write my own music. So he started, uh, dabbling in music in his teens and he wrote, uh, the first Two pieces <clears throat> that we know that he wrote were actually for guitar, but those are missing pieces. Mm. Uh, they, they, they don't, they don't exist anymore. No one knows exactly what happened to them, but they're, they were, uh, one was called Jean, which, uh, he spelled J-I-N, okay. that was based on an Ainu word. And then another piece called Nocturne. Uh, <clears throat> they were both for guitar, but they're lost now, so we don't know what happened to them. But when he was, uh, 17, he started writing an original piece for piano. And he finished it when he was 19, actually. So it took him a while. But this was someone that had no musical training whatsoever. He was basically making it up as he went along. But what he was trying to do was he was trying to take a European instrument, piano, mm-hmm. and write music that didn't sound European. He wanted to use his experiences with traditional Ainu music and traditional Japanese folk music and create a sound, sort of an Eastern sound, for Western instruments. So his first uh, piece of music is called Piano Suite, and that was finished when he was 19, and that's his first published work. And then, of course, after that, in 1935, he wrote his first uh, orchestral piece. It's called Japanese Rhapsody. Uh, he was 21. Again, this was with no formal musical training. At that time, he was working as a forestry officer out in the wilds of Hokkaido. So, you know, during the day, he'd be doing his forestry duties. And then at night, in his isolated cabin, literally in the middle of nowhere, by the light of a gas lamp at night, he would write this music. And again, sort of making it up as he went along yeah. because he had no training. Where Where could somebody... In, you know, the 1930s in Hokkaido go 
to get a formal classical training. I mean, he could have gone to Europe, and a lot of Japanese composers of his generation did mm -hmm. go to Europe to study, but he didn't have that luxury. So he had to sort of, as I keep saying, make it up as he went along. Interesting. Is his, uh, la I don't want to say lack of fo formal training, but is, because he didn't have formal training, do you think that's maybe why Ifukube's music stands out so much from other uh, other scores that we've heard? I mean, obviously, it, if we're talking only about Kaiju's stuff, it really doesn't make sense to, to make that statement because he's so prevalent in Kaiju music. But if you're talking about other scores, and I'm not a huge music score guy, but like other film scores, like his stuff stands out as just being very different. And I think when, you know, when you're talking about films like Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, when that was brought to the United States and the U.S. distributor just said, no, no take all that music out <laughs> and put in our classic horror stuff, you right. know, because uh, it sounds too oriental, you know. Right. That's, <clears throat> I, that's almost... That's almost a compliment, I would say, for, for Fukube's work, because it does, it doesn't sound like normal, like music scores from America. Oh, I agree. And do I think that his lack of training was an essential element to his sound? I would say, I know it is. I don't yeah. think it is. I know it is. And, you know, ironically, he's, he's the better for it because I, I feel, and, and I think he, I'm trying to remember. I think he also made a comment about this, that had he, let's say, gone off to Europe mm -hmm. to to study, you know, he would have been inundated with all of the rules. Well, you, you can't do this. Right, right. You yeah, have to yeah. do it. You have to do your harmonies this way. You have to write uh, melodic lines this way. You know, there there's, you know, we have rigorous standards for this type of thing and you need to follow them. Well, because he wasn't forced into that. Uh, as I've said before, I think what we hear in his music, it is the the purest artistic expression mm -hmm. that we could that we could have you know hoped for. You know, this it's a pure adulterated expression and creativity without having to pass through the filters of of any sort of dogma or any sort of established discipline. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what he heard in his head, and without thinking, oh, well, I'm hearing this in my head, but I was taught I can't write this way, so I won't. He wasn't, right. he wasn't bothered by any of that. So it was directly from his mind, uh, to the, to the paper. Yeah. And, and I think we're all the, we're all the richer for that Absolutely. as, as, as fans of his music yeah. because he's one of the few composers that I know of, be it, uh, film composer or classical composer that, you know, you hear a few notes of that music, three notes, four notes, five notes, and then you know exactly who it is. And I think that's, that's, that that's again another testament to his creativity and may i be so bold to say genius because when you're writing music or if you're a graphic artist or whatever it's very hard to say okay well i'm going to do something that when people hear it they know it's me and nobody else or when they see my work when they see my painting or they see my drawing or whatever it is they know it's me and no mm -hmm. one else mm -hmm. he was able to do that and i Absolutely, think yeah. and i think that's that's the result of the lack of training. So it was. I think had he gone off and gotten any type of form, formal training, that would have been a real detriment to uh, the the sound that he ended up creating so successfully. Oh yeah, yeah. And who knows what the landscape of giant monster movies <laughs> would have been like if without without that uh, 
that non-training. I, I love the Fukubay's stuff. Um, do you have anything in particular that you're, you like, uh, outside of his scores that the listeners might be able to track down or, or listen to on maybe YouTube? Oh, yeah. And, and there's so much. And, and this was a point I think I brought up last year at your live panel is that, you know, he, he's written concertos mm-hmm. and ballet and music for, you know, chamber ensembles and all this kind of stuff. And you're, Listeners are probably saying concertos, ballet. Like, uh, thank you. I'll I'll stick to uh, I'll stick to the monsters. Right, right. But let me say it loud and clear. You don't know what you're missing. Don't don't be. I don't want to use this word, but don't be fooled mm-hmm. by by these by these words, ballet, concerto, and all that kind of stuff. Because his concert music is often every bit as brash and bombastic and and smashing and everything that we like about his con about his film music and sometimes even more so mm-hmm. for example one piece that comes to mind immediately for me is a ballet it's called salome and it's based on the story from the the old testament of the bible i think it's the old testament i'm not a biblical scholar but i think it is the old testament where you know they bring the head of saint john the baptist and the dance of the seven veils and it's a piece of music that's about 40 minutes and there's some of the most rhythmically exciting and bombastic music that he ever wrote in that score. Mm-hmm. And the final scene where uh, Salome's father orders his guards to seize and kill his daughter. It's some of the most aggressive, loud, bombastic, vicious music mm-hmm. I've ever heard. I mean, quite honestly, it puts, it makes some of his kaiju music sound like a ice cream truck <laughs> rolling by or something. And I'm, 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 I'm exa- it's just a great image. It's just a great mental I mean, image. I'm exaggerating yeah. a little bit, yeah. but I, I think that if you like the kaiju scores because you like that big sound, you like sort of that, that bombast. Well, it's all over his concert works. All you have to do is, is look for it. And this piece, Salome, it's spelled S-A-L-O-M-E. You can YouTube it. It's all over YouTube. His other classical pieces. It's all there for you. And, and, and we, this is the age we live in where, you yeah, know, we yeah. have YouTube. So it's, it's so cool to have that stuff at your fingertips. It, yeah. it is. You can, so you can sample this stuff completely risk free. You don't have to, you know, go yeah. out and invest in, you know, some uh, $60 import Japanese right, right. CD and be like, eh, maybe I don't like this. Yeah. But I'll, I'll include links in this. Uh, I'll include some links in the show notes so that people can check it out for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, another piece uh, from 1941, the Symphony Concertante for piano and orchestra. Um, that's got some amazing music in there too. Just again, loud and a lot of percussion and all the things that we, that kaiju people like in the kaiju films. It's, it's, it's there. So just go to YouTube, type in the composer's name and just sort of let your, let your guard down for a little bit. You know, don't, don't approach it with any prejudices and just, and just explore. And I, I can, more or less guarantee that if you like his film work, mm-hmm. there'll be at least one thing out there in the concert world that you'll probably really dig. I know several people in the kaiju fan community that have gotten into collecting the scores from the kaiju films. Mm-hmm. And then as they've <clears throat> investigated Fukube and other composers more, they start to dive into their other works. Yes. And, um, Jim Fugerski, who was on the panel with us That's right. uh, last year, he also is a big collector of Ifukabe's work. And I think he 
I don't want to say in exclusively collects Ifuku Bay's music, but when I was asking him about some other scores, like, oh, do you have this or that, you know, stuff that I don't have, uh, he was like, ah, no, I just pretty much have Ifuku Bay <laughs> stuff and, and branching out into other Ifuku Bay pieces. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm very interested in hearing more because I've been, I've had a very limited, uh, a limited ear view of, <laughs> of his music. Uh, what, when did he start composing four films though? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, that was in uh, 1947, actually. Okay. Um, he was still living in northern Japan, and his friend, Fumio Hayasaka, who many of you probably know because he was Kurosawa's composer of choice oh, okay. yes. uh, before uh, uh, Hayasaka died at a young age in 1955. He was 41. and uh, But Hayasaka in 1939... Uh, he was also from Hokkaido. Ifukube and Hayasaka grew up together. They were they were oh. best friends growing up in Hokkaido. And in 1939, Hayasaka thought it would be a good idea to leave the wilds of Hokkaido and relocate to Tokyo and get involved in this burgeoning film industry in Japan. Hmm. And, and keep in mind, you know, uh, Japan uh, in, in 1939. Uh, Films with sound were still relatively new. If you see Japanese films even going to the early 1930s, they're, they're still silent films. Okay. So in 1939, it was, you know, film music was very much a, a, a for all intents and purposes, a still pretty new mm-hmm. concept. Just finding its footing in Japanese filmmaking. Right. And, and Hayasaka saw the writing on the wall and thought, well, I'm going to get out of here, go to Tokyo, and I'm going to get a, get my foot in the door and really start establishing myself. Mm-hmm. Well, after after the war, uh, Hayasaka uh, convinced his friend, you know, you really should get out of the uh, get out of Hokkaido. You're not going to advance very far if you stay there. Come to Tokyo, start writing film music. You know, you'll get paid to compose. You mm-hmm. can't, you know, if you're if you like writing music, then you <laughs> yeah. know that's that's that sounds good, doesn't it? So, Ifukube said. Okay. And I think it was an appealing idea to, to him because Yves Kube was, you know, he was starting to get a, his, his family was growing and he, he thought, yeah, I, I think that this would be a great opportunity to get paid to do what I like to do. So he, uh, he actually didn't move to Tokyo right away. He, he couldn't, that, right directly after the war, there were restrictions for people. If you didn't live in Tokyo, they were, they restricted people coming to live oh, there. Really? Yeah. So he, he was actually living in a town, uh, quite a bit to the north of Tokyo called Nikko and he would uh, take trains to go to Tokyo you know uh-huh. so it's fascinating <laughs> stuff but uh, the first uh, film scores from 1947 it's called Snow Trail and it was actually in that film that was also Toshiro Mifune's first film really yes so what's what's fascinating about that is that Ifukube and Mifune both share their first film together and that was a film that was uh, co-written by uh, Akira Kurosawa as well mm. so that was in 1947 and you know he he didn't have a whole lot of film assignments at first. I mean, it was fairly steady, but it was, you know, something that he was also learning how to do. He, you know, films, he, I don't think he ever envisioned himself as being a film composer. Mm-hmm. So he was yeah. getting used to what that would be like to, you know, sync sound, sync uh, cues to, to scenes and, you know, trimming the, the timing and all that kind of stuff. But it was in, 1954 that fateful year mm-hmm. when when he wrote the music for Godzilla is that that's when his career as a film composer really took off before that it was it was fairly steady 
But I would say after 54, after the immense success of Godzilla, it went from steady to just being a flood of, mm-hmm. we, we, yeah. we want, we want you to write music for our films because that score was such a success. Well, the film was such a success. I, I think at that with Godzilla, anyone creatively attached to that film, I mean, well, think about it. Honda, Tsuburaya, Yves Kube, they uh, virtually overnight in Japan, they became household names mm-hmm. because of their associations. Oh, and the actors too. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, and absolutely. of course, yeah. and of course the actors. So, so after it was because of Godzilla is when he really became in demand. And that's really when his career as a film composer took off. Fantastic. Uh, so, but at the time when he was traveling from Nikko to yes. Tokyo, was he also still writing concertos and, uh, and ballets as well? So he was, if Fukube, correct me if I'm wrong, he was really playing the field music wise and, and doing a lot of work. It wasn't just film scores. That's actually a very good way to put it. And, and he was, and he, uh, and he was also teaching. He was also teaching at a uh, school in Tokyo called the, the, the Tokyo School of Music. So he was. He went from no training to teaching. That, that's right. And, and, and the, and it was the president. He, he had gotten a request from the, the, at that time, the new president of the school. And, they, and he said, Yves Kube, we'd like you to come and teach, be, be a lecturer in orchestration. And oh Yves, and, and, Yves Kube, so cool. and Yves Kube said, well, I, I'm not, I'm not formally trained. Right. I, I have no academic credentials to, to teach. And the president of the school said, well, that's okay. You know, I can, <laughs> I, I can see, I, we, I can get you in. Yeah. And so he said, okay, I'll do it. So yes, at that time, he was still writing concert works. He was getting into film work and he was teaching. So I think playing the field is a very good way of putting it, you know, and, and he was teaching. And, uh, doing the film work, like you said, coming from Nico, that's, that's quite by train. That's quite an arduous journey back and forth to do that. But he had to do something for money. Um, you, you were, you're not, <laughs> you're not paid to write concert works, yeah. you know? So he, he, like I said, his family was growing. He had to do something financially. So, and, and he wanted to do, he wanted to make money in one way or another connected to music. So that's an excellent way of putting it. You know, do I, do I become a teacher? Do I devote myself more to the film music? Do I still find the time to write concert works? What, you know, what do mm-hmm. I do? Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, from 1946 until 1953 that he was, that he was teaching there at that, at the Tokyo Music School. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why he, he quit in 1953, there was actually a few reasons, but one of the, reasons was that even before Godzilla, you know, the, the film work was getting a little bit more steady and he finally said, okay, well, you know, I can, I don't have to, I don't have to work two jobs now. Right, I, I can, yeah, I can yeah. just focus on the, on the film work. And that's, uh, that's what he started to do. Oh, wow. So, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. Like, so 1954, that's when he did Godzilla and became very wanted, very popular. And, yes. and uh, Toho wanted him back, you know, repeatedly uh, yes when did uh when did he did he ever actually sort of stop composing music for films or did he just continually do it and just branch out off of kaiju films because essentially we see him in the first decade of kaiju films yes he's he's prevalent i mean he's in i mean he's scored almost all of those films and then after the first decade, it sort of tapers off a little bit. They bring in Masaru Sato. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, of course, get um, 
Richiro uh, Manabe. Manabe, thank you. <laughs> and then, uh, so going into the, into the 60s, halfway through the 60s and into the 70s, if Fukube is not around orally, and then you, we, uh, I think the listeners know this for 1972's Godzilla vs. Gigan, that score is entirely pulled from other works of Ifukube. That's right. Uh, so while he composed the film's music, <laughs> he didn't really compose the film's music as much. Actually, did how much work would you say that he did put into that film? Did he Godzilla vs. Gigan? Yeah. Did he actually just say none? Uh, here's my <laughs> here's my playlist for that particular film. No. Well, I well well for that. No. I mean that's and that's just a a great illustration of the. Uh, the, the budgetary issues mm-hmm. you know, for the 1970s films is that they, they basically went in, Toho went into their archives of just re- previously recorded cues from, from mm-hmm. this and that and said, okay, yeah, that'll, that'll work well for this scene or that'll work well for that scene. So, so he had no, oh, he had no input on that. No, they just, oh, okay. I mean, it's his music He's certainly just named there for. Less about the film score <laughs> composed by, you know, Akira Fukube, more like, Film score cold from Ifukube's work. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's right. right. But, uh, to, to answer your question, um, yeah, going into the, uh, the 1970s is when he started to, well, yeah, from, from Godzilla and then all through the 1960s, uh, he was, he was on fire. Uh, and I, I would say for, for him, you know, probably it was the night, well, not probably, most definitely it was the 1960s where he was at his busiest. But going into the 1970s, he definitely started slowing down a little bit and, uh, you know, ironically going back into education. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he started, you know, education, then devoted, you know, decided to devote more time to film. And then towards the end of that decided to go from film to devote more time to being an educator. But, um, yeah, the 1970s were, uh, much less, uh, fruitful for him mm-hmm. in terms of film music in general. And again, that's not because he wasn't getting offers. That was, that was, by design Mm -hmm. and then he scored uh nothing in the 1980s and then in the 1990s you know when he was basically in retirement you know as the old story goes you know he was uh uh, coaxed out of retirement to uh, start composing for the heisei series so oh yeah uh kazuki amori i believe mm -hmm. was really trying to pull in some of the classic actors and classic obviously composer uh to bring new blood into the Heisei series, right? Right. And, and, you know, and if, if, if the composer didn't want to do it, he certainly, uh, all, all he could have said was no, but I, but he loved scoring kaiju films. It, those, you know, he's, he's said this several times, you know, in one way or another, but of, of all of the types of films that, that he scored, you know, be it, you know, samurai films or dramatic films or, or whatever, he really enjoyed writing for kaiju films more than any of it. So I think that, yeah, I mean, there was, there was probably some, some prodding and some pushing and, but again, he could have very easily mm-hmm. said no. Yeah. But he, but he returned to it and, uh, ended up scoring those four films. And they, when he wrote Godzilla versus Destroyer, he was 81 years old. I mean, you know, he, 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 he would have had a great excuse to say, no, I <laughs> yeah. don't think I'm up to it. But he, he really, he felt a very close connection to, to the material. He, mm-hmm. he really did. In fact, at his, uh, home in Tokyo, 
you know, your, your fans of vinyl figures will like this. Mm-hmm. He had in like his, you know, backyard in his garden, he would have, um, uh, vinyl figures on display in his garden, like instead of a garden gnome, garden Godzillas. Right, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and even, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the Godzilla 54 head, it's like, you know, for the, what was it? The perfect collection. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah. He, that, that head, he had that in his backyard. He had, he had a very large backyard, uh, especially for, for, you know, by Tokyo standards with uh with a pond and uh there's a little <laughs> little like sort of rock formation and he's got that Godzilla head peeking out from behind the rocks it it, it resembles actually the the scene in 54 because right, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the 54 the the yeah. <laughs> that's right it's the 54 gods and that was in his back he, he also had uh uh vinyl figures of of Daimajin you know so he, he had a real love for the kaiju and yeah. at, at his home he proudly displayed godzilla and and daimajin so again going back to my point you know he he could he had a perfect excuse not to return to film mm-hmm. scoring but Absolutely. he felt such a connection to it i think that he 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 quite enjoyed returning please tell me you told me a great story yesterday about the the potential connection that he has to uh to movies about giant insects and giant reptiles right well as as a as a child growing up in hokkaido uh he did what a lot of young boys do everywhere i think and that's you know collect insects Mm -hmm. and reptiles that you know catching them and stuff and so and he he would do that he had he had pet snakes he had pet insects that he he would catch himself you know he didn't go to the you know the kushiro (laughs) pet store he would you know he loved playing out in the forests Mm -hmm. and he would catch uh insects and reptiles and uh there was even uh one quote where as as a very young boy, he once considered his little pets that he caught to be his best friends. Uh, he but he had a particular interest in insects and reptiles as a child. So, you know, we start uh, thinking about the the kaiju films. Well, mm-hmm. what do a lot of the kaiju tend to be? Well, giant reptiles, giant insects. So I, I think that being able to write music for this type of material. I think in many ways it, it brought out his inner child. I mean, I, I think, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm going a little far in saying this, but you know, there almost like a fanboy element to mm-hmm. that. Like, mm-hmm. wow, I, 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 I like these types of animals, but look at this, look at this. These are like giant versions that they have, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah, these, yeah. they have these like, you know, amazing uh, abilities and, and, and powers. And, and I, I think that, uh, I think to a certain extent, it, it probably brought him back to his wonderment, his, his childlike wonderment, you know, from collecting these, these things as a child. I think it, I think it was, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm glad he came back for the Heisei series because, uh, as he, as he did previously, he reused a lot of those themes and it's good to hear them in new context. Yes. Um, I don't, I cannot remember if I mentioned this on the panel last year, uh, but this actually has a, somewhat of a correlation to what you said at the beginning of the interview here. Uh, you said that he started writing guitar pieces as a, as way a teenager to yeah. bring Eastern, Eastern sounds sound to, to Western, Western instruments. Right. Yeah. So in the intro for Godzilla versus Destroya, mm-hmm. 
when the music swells and the titles come on screen, you hear a lot of Chinese instruments. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know this. I actually lived in Hong Kong for a little while. I, I didn't know that. I lived in Hong Kong for two years. And I can say with absolute, uh, because I was their authority, classical Chinese instrumentation is still a big deal in in Hong Kong and in, in China. You hear it a lot. It sort of just permeates the the life that you live there. Not sure. because, you know, it's uh, rural or anything or, or an ancient land like they that. Just have a, just so they, the, they have a connection they to have their a tradition. They have a connection to it today, right. to the, their past musically. And so when the titles come up and you can hear all those Chinese instruments come in and start with their blaring horns. And uh, I was blown away in 1996 when I finally right. saw that. Or when I saw that, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, those are Chinese instruments playing those, you know, this awesome score." And it sort of seems like the same kind of thing. Like in the in his twilight years, he was writing his own works for Chinese instrumentation, mm-hmm. just for just especially for that track. But, yeah. Well, he actually had a very large collection of Chinese instruments. He collected. Oh, really? He did. He he collected instruments from. Uh, around the world, particularly, uh, from, from all over Asia. <clears throat> he was, in, in addition to being a composer and so many other things that he was, he was also an ethnomusicologist, which means that he studied the musical traditions of, of various cultures and the cultures of Asia. The musical uh, traditions of Asia were what was of particular interest, of particular interest to him. So he had actually a very wide uh, collection of, Asian instruments and Chinese instruments that he had actually started collecting, I think as early as the late 1940s. So, but when you, when you hear these, these sounds in, in any of his score, the, you know, harmonies or sort of the, these melodic contours and things like that, they, they, they don't sound like Mozart. They don't sound like Beethoven. They, they don't sound, well, for lack of a better word, European. Mm -hmm. He, in, in virtually every note that he ever wrote, there is some amount of Asian spirit in there. So, you know, if you're listening to Destroyer or any of the kaiju scores for, for that matter, you're going to hear harmonies and melodies that are directly influenced from, you know, his, as I had mentioned earlier, his studies of Ainu music mm-hmm. or, 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 oh, yeah. or traditional Japanese folk singing. It's, it's all there. Yeah. It's, it's all there. So. Uh, that was obviously his last film, Godzilla vs. Destroyer, the yes. last one he scored. Uh, and then he, how soon after that did he pass away? Well, he passed away in 2006. So okay, about, so it was a, it was about a, 11 years yeah, after 11 years Destroyer. After. Yeah. Wow. Is he, uh, still, I mean, he's highly regarded in Japan today. Very right? much so, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, do they still perform his works in concert now that he's passed on? Yeah, and actually with, uh, with quite a bit of regularity. Uh, you know, he's, he's very popular in Japan, um, on the, on the, in the classical scene, certainly. But, you know, he's, he's got the advantage of, of also attracting audiences that are not necessarily into classical music per se. You know, they, they, like if you've got a a concert where they're performing symphonic fantasia and some of his other classical works, you know, right. you're, a lot of people will come specifically for the, the, the fantasia. So his, his music, I, I think because of, of the connection with film and, and uh, popular culture 
has a, has a wider reach mm-hmm. in Japanese society than maybe some other composers who are, you know, didn't write popular film scores and this sort of thing. But absolutely, he's, he's quite frequently performed in Japan. And, you know, another thing about him is that uh, he received two, uh, two medals from uh, the imperial household. He, the order of culture and order of the sacred treasure. These are, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, if we want to make an equivalency here, it's like uh, like a knighthood or something right, from yeah. in, in Britain, where it's the the royal uh, uh, the, the the royal household that decides who gets these uh, these awards and, and and distributes them. Well, he received these for his cultural contributions to uh, to Japanese society. Uh, he was awarded the Order of Culture and Order of the Sacred Treasure, two different awards, and then these were. Uh, again, awards that are conferred upon you directly from the imperial household. So he's, he, in, in, in Jap, in Japan's musical culture, he holds a, a very, very high rank. That's well deserved, in my opinion. I completely agree. <laughs> well, I think what we should do is we should, uh, somewhat wrap up the interview. I, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about how you got involved with uh, with the Afukabe family and how you got involved with uh, being the official English, you know, webmaster, I guess you could say, of, right. of, uh, of his online biography. Because that's really, if you if you don't know, listeners, Eric puts a lot of work into uh, posting updates and and writing Akira Ifukabe's biography in english that's right yeah well the the website i started uh about two weeks or so after the composer died in mm-hmm. 2006 and before while he was still living i i was thinking that i might want to create a website about him but at the time i i had no idea how you would uh, buy a website buy a domain right, name yeah. create a website i i had no idea so i thought well this is not my world. I this is kind of like what John was thinking about, you know, putting on a concert. I thought, well, someone else will do it, and I'll just wait for that. Right. But after he died, it was it was a very moving experience for me. It was like, wow, the, the, the great composer's gone. So something inside of me said, well, we we have to honor his his memory now, and uh, you know, no one else is doing it, so I guess I yeah, might as well. Yeah. So I, I what I did was I. I figured out how to buy a domain name and I the website started as one of those uh template websites yeah, yeah. you know so so not, oh, I know those well <laughs> I know those very so, well <laughs> so not very sophisticated by by any means but you know I I was going to use that as my starting point to start really delving into the whatever research I could do mm-hmm. and start compiling it on this website well about a year after I had established the website I was very surprised one day to receive a communication from the late composer's son, an email. And he basically said, you know, I've been tracking your website. I know about it. Uh, you know, and of course I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, I read these lines and it's in English and I'm thinking, oh, well, what's coming here? <laughs> the next sentence is <laughs> going to be cease and desist. I just know it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but he was actually uh, very complimentary mm-hmm. and very supportive and I, I, I couldn't believe it. So I, I got, I, I responded back to him and I said, well, you know, I'm really wanting to do your father justice here on, on this website. Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of 
opened the doors for me is that uh, because of that that contact and that uh, communication that had been established, I was able to get access to photographs, information, and all mm-hmm. sorts of things that uh, much of which had never even been published or written about in Japan at that point. You know that was that was made availability that was made available to me, mm-hmm. which just you know it's. I look back on it because it, it it started off really as a fan site. And then, you know, as I was able to make the operation, if you will, a little bit more sophisticated and with this great amount of authenticity and, and, and detail, I asked if I could have the honor of referring to my website as official mm-hmm. and without hesitation, he said, yes, absolutely. So, well, yeah. And that's, Again, that's what's so interesting. That's what's so fascinating about this experience to me is that, you know, I went from having just fan website, template yeah, website. Yeah. Uh, of course, now I use, I use, uh, an antiquated version of, of Dreamweaver. And by the way, one thing I do want to say, if anyone's ever been to the site, you know, it, it's not the most sophisticated website in terms of, of, of graphics and layout. It's actually pretty old school. And that's, that's because I'm not a web designer. You know, I, that's, that's good though, because it's, educational for one and uh your your website exists really to share this information you know i don't i don't know what else you would want to do with it but well, like yeah you're right and and it's well it's not the most sophisticated website out there i think it has it has a nice layout i think it's fairly intuitive but I, I would hope that whatever it lacks in terms of slick design mm-hmm. it may i make up for it in in terms of the the quality of the information, and I think that's what people should be coming to that website for anyway. Yeah. Not not to get some yeah. uh, cutting edge uh, web design experience because you're certainly not going to get that on my site. But welcome to kiraifugabe.org. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. I, I I think that would uh, <laughs> that would not work very well. I don't no. think for the subject matter. No, it's a now I I'm actually I think you already know this. I have not read the entire biography that you've posted online, but you've posted some pretty significant updates and you're going way back in if I mean you're basically going from his childhood into his adult life and how far are you into his life right now what uh, chapter wise well yeah I if I, I call them officially I call them sections of the biography I feel I don't feel it's quite right to call them chapters because it's not a book but uh, I start at the beginning which is always a good place to start. And in, 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 in 19... For a biography? Yeah. Okay, if that's what you want to do. That's right. You know, sort of start in the middle and work out in either direction. Uh, you know. I think that's what we did here in this interview. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. This is this is a good example of how not to do a biography. No, I think you're doing a wonderful job. Um, no, we start at uh, 1914, actually a little bit earlier than that, because we go into a little bit of his family history. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm at, uh, as at the time of this podcast, I'm at 1957. I just got on talking about the Mysterians, but basically the online biography that I have, it's, it's a work in progress. It's ongoing, but it's basically my book. Right. Um, and what's great about doing it this way is that I can, I can release the, the Kraken. No, I can release the chapters sequentially or serially. Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't have to wait till the entire thing is done and then get it out there. I can, I can do it as I, I go along. So I like that I'm able to, because if, if I, if I were writing a book, you know, I'm only at 1957 now and I've been at this for almost a decade. (laughs) So I, I, I have, 
I I have no idea when I yeah. when I'd be done, but but it reads like a book. It's mm-hmm. it's got all of mm-hmm. the detail of of a book. I would hope so. It's it's basically my book in progress in electronic form. But a lot of people have said to me, Eric, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And my answer is, well, I am writing it, ex- ex- yeah. except it's it's online. But I think due to popular demand, I think that when the thing is done. I will probably uh, prepare a version for for a for book, and, and it'll and it'll, it, it, by, by the time I'm done, it'll definitely be book length. And even as it stands now, at at you know, even though we're at only at 1957 right now, it's actually quite long now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think at some point when it's done, I w- I would love to do a book version. Very cool, man. Well, uh, what can we look forward to? Obviously, it's a sequential by year and by <laughs> event uh, biography that you're writing. But what can we expect in the coming months? Like, uh, I'm not sure how far you are in the next segment of, of the Fukube's life. Yeah, well, I think, uh, as I mentioned, as of this podcast, I just got done writing about the score for the, uh, the Mysterians. So coming up, I'm going to talk about the score for Veron. Uh, I've got uh, the the birth of Japan coming up. Mm-hmm. My I, I've got basically kind of on my immediate back burner going up to about 1960. So once I get back uh, into my beautiful sweet home of San Diego after being here in uh, Chicago, yeah. I'm going to get back to work on that. And uh, yeah, so we've got uh, also Battle in Outer Space. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be oh, talking yeah. about. So. Oh, it is such a well, great the, score. They, One of the <laughs> some of the best moments from Symphonic Fantasia are the Battle in Outer Space moments and Mysterians too. Oh well, Mysterians is I mean my my favorite film score that kaiju film score is Godzilla fifty four. But you know if I were pressed, what's the second best? I you know I I would for me it'd probably either be Rodan or the Mysterians. Mm-hmm. Actually, I those those two scores are just they're, they're just so Rodan, good. So, yeah. We could sit here and like just basically <laughs> say, "Oh, I love this song from this this music." Yeah, ah, yeah. It's 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 been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about Ifukube's work. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners before we before we say goodbye? Well, do visit my website mm-hmm. akuraifukube.org. Like I was just explaining to Kyle, it's there's a lot of information on there that I've worked very hard for a very long time to get out there, and. If you're at all interested in kaiju films and the tokusatsu genre, I can't downplay the importance of, you know, all of the great characters, or or I should say the great uh, for, founding fathers of these films, mm-hmm. Tsuburai, Honda, and certainly Kube. They all contributed to these films something special and unique from their from their lives, from their life, life experiences mm-hmm. that make these films as great as they are. You know, so I think it's, it's a very apt statement to say, if you want to understand these films and, and what makes these films so great on a much more profound level, mm-hmm. you want to delve into the people that, that made this genre possible. So go to the website, check out some of the information there, see who this man was and discover the unique things from his life that he brought to the table that made the music for these films so great that made the films so great. It's, it's something I really encourage for the fans to do. And I I think that once you start 
delving in a little deeper into what makes these films so great, well, it's the people behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can't, I, I can't, stre- agree. I can't stress that enough. These films did not just pop out of the sky. They were created by some, some real, as far as I'm concerned, some real genius mm-hmm. oh, artists and craftsmen. Yeah. So to understand these films better, you need to understand the people that made them. Without a doubt. And that sounds like a, a fantastic place for me to say once again, thank you so much. This has been a long time coming. I got to meet Eric last year at G-Fest, <laughs> and uh, I got to have a beer with him oh, in yeah, the bar. Well, and, I think, oh, I think more than God, one. Yeah. We had an amazing conversation, and maybe about 15 minutes into it, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, why am I not recording this? Uh, so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, sir, and and you're welcome back anytime if you want to uh, you know, promote more chapters or if you do eventually get to a book. I'd love to have you back on. Well, yeah, when we get to the book, we'll see in about 20 years probably for that. (laughs) But Kyle, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Now, let me put you on the spot here for a second. Okay. I want you to take us out on one of your favorite pieces from Ifukube's works, from from his kaiju work. Okay. Uh, So, I'm going to, we're going to end the interview, but we're going to kill this entire episode with with one song. So, what would that song be? Well, what comes to mind immediately are the closing credits from Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 1993. All right. Well, thank you again, and uh, I'll see you around the show, of course, and uh, we'll have you back on sometime. Jamata. <laughs> 